This show is part of the Electric Agora network of podcasts. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Everyday Philosophers. This is a podcast dedicated to describing for you the life of philosophers who are neither Twitter famous nor research famous, but are doing good, important philosophical work all the same. And I want people to know about that work. So my first guest today, well, actually, why don't you let everybody know who the host is, Chris? Yes, welcome everyone to the inaugural edition of this podcast. Our host is Dr. Robert Gressis at uh, Cal State Northridge. Uh, mm-hmm. He is neither Twitter famous nor research famous, Definitely uh, not. but he is fairly well known in the cat world. Among two cats. Yeah, between two cats, I should say, right? Among us, right. three or more. Yeah, two cats know of me well. And actually, there's a third cat, my mom's cat, Karitsi. She's she's familiar with my work. That's and right. uh, my my guest today is Chris Dodsworth of Spring Hill College. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Sorry, for people who are just listening, the, 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 my, my very hefty cat jumped on the cat tree behind me and nearly knocked it over. Um, anyway... Uh, my guest is Chris Dodsworth of Spring Hill College in Mobile, Alabama, and today we're going to be talking about what it's like to work at Spring Hill College and what kind of work Chris does. But before we do any of that, I want to start with a small talk question. So, Chris, what is the smallest thing we can talk about? Ooh. <laughs> You know, I just read that scientists have discovered four new subatomic particles. Are they um, smaller than, than super strings? Or do, are we not counting super strings because we don't know that they're real? Yeah. I would say probably the smallest thing that we can talk about is, of all things, probably mm. Donald Trump's ego. <laughs> I mean, it's almost non-existent. No one ever brings it up in conversation. No when one has ever talked about him. They say selfless. Oh, the, the other cat behind us, the other cat knocked the first cat off. It's a classic cat fight. I was going <laughs> to say, I was going to say monad. I was going to say monad is the smallest thing we can talk about. Oh my goodness. I've got a student in one of my classes who no. just keeps wanting to talk about monads all the time. And it's, yeah. I think he wants to talk about monads from a platonic point of view, which would be more like Plotinus, right? In the, oh, the, of the one and all that stuff, not Leibnizian monads. Um, oh, I didn't realize there were any other kinds of monads. Yeah, it's a, it's well, I'm not, I don't claim to understand it very well either, but uh, yeah. So, I mean, monad, in case people don't know, monad was an invention of the philosopher Leibniz, and he thought basically, look, for anything you can think of, you can imagine something smaller, like just half the size, unless you had something that was so small that it took up literally zero space, right? Which you might think is nothing. He said it was not nothing. He said it was a monad because although it takes up no space, it is a mental entity. And so it has uh, some kind of mentality to it, but no physicality to it. And then he went further and said, all of physical reality is made up of these mental things. So physical reality is like kind of a projection of mental entities. So I would think that's about as small as we can get. Like you literally can't get any smaller because the whole point is that it takes up no space. Unless you want to say that that you that like nothingness itself is smaller or something. Well, I mean, you know, you could just smaller metaphorically, right? Instead of physically, not smallest by extension, but smallest mm-hmm. by, you know, some other category. Like, I mean, everyone agrees, for example, that uh, a paradise lost is the smallest epic poem. I mean, it goes by in like 
half a minute or something? I read it to my son every night. <laughs> exactly, right? I've had it deeply memorized at this point. <laughs> well, right. anyway, that was small talk. So let's talk about uh, you some more, Chris. So um, you work at Spring Hill College in Mobile, Alabama. What is Spring Hill College? I mean, what is, it's, a college. It's, a, well, it's a college. It's, it's a Jesuit college, right? It is Jesuit. Yes, it, it is a small Jesuit college. So for those of you who don't know, Jesuit, uh, the Jesuit religious order is an order within the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it was founded by Ignatius of Loyola in Spain. Mm -hmm. And it is uh, like all Jesuit colleges and universities. There are 27 of them in this country, but uh, many, many more across the world. I, I don't know the total number of Jesuit universities worldwide. And in addition to that, there are <clears throat> high schools in this country and, and elsewhere. The, the total number of Jesuit educational institutions must I would think number in the thousands or something like this, all, in, all inspired by the Jesuit charism of Ignatius of Loyola. Okay, so what is what relevance does the fact that your university is a Jesuit university have to the philosophy department, to the teaching of philosophy, to the students, that sort of stuff? Like, do does that come down in any kind of mandates about how you're supposed to teach, or is it does it manifest in who, what kind of person they select? Do they give you like what should I say, training seminars where they teach you about the Jesuit approach to teaching and ex exhort you to use it? Yeah, good. So there is something called Ignatian pedagogy, although truth be told, Ignatian pedagogy is, is pretty broad. And I think uh, practitioners of other pedagogies would readily recognize much of what they do in, in this broad framework. I would say that, uh, first of all, uh, the fact that we are a Jesuit Catholic institution means that we value philosophy in ways that uh, secular universities may not value it. And uh, second, it, it certainly inspires the mission of the school. Uh, we have a strong commitment to social justice and to intellectual inquiry. And so uh, we see ourselves, we can readily see ourselves supporting the mission of the school in the practice of philosophy. But before I ask you a follow-up, I want to, I just realized I hadn't plugged in my snazzy new mic that'll have better sound. So let me just plug that in and let me just make sure everything is a go. Um, okay. All right. Good. I think, I think it, uh, yep. I got the right microphone. Um, all right. Where we go again. Good. So anyway, um, so there's care for the whole person. There's intellectual inquiry, a high reverence for philosophy. Everybody has to take at least one philosophy course at Spring Hill, right? At least two. At least two. Everybody takes two. So that, that keeps you in business. How many students are there? Like 1,200? About that, yeah. I don't remember exactly what the numbers are, but around that, yeah. And how many philosophy professors are there? Six. Six. So six for 1,200 is actually pretty good. So it's like one professor for every 200 students. And each of them sees two philosophy classes at least. Pardon me. Um, we, each, each, we each teach, thank you, we each teach four classes a semester. You each teach four classes a semester. And yeah. so how many, how many majors do you have? I honestly, off the top of my head, have no idea. Uh -huh. uh, Would you say now, around like 10? Oh, so uh, yeah, probably 20 or something like this. Oh, okay. that's, that's there are not many, good. very many philosophy majors, yeah. Yeah, but still there's so many people who get exposure to philosophy. Do you know, have you talked to any colleagues in any of the other departments 
where that exposure to philosophy actually shines through in how the students think or reason or anything like that? You mean departments, other academic disciplines here yeah. at Spring Hill? Oh, yeah. yeah. So people across the college will readily comment on, uh, yeah, what our students have learned in philosophy. Um, everyone's required to take an introductory logic course for one thing. And yeah. so, uh, I mean, I've talked to many professors in other disciplines who say, well, as you should have learned in logic, as you learned in logic, or you should have learned in logic, as Dodsworth taught you, right? And so, um, yeah, I'd say we, I would say that it's pretty well received across, uh, across the college. Um, I mean, for example, the business division requires all, every single one of their students to take business ethics in our department. So, oh, wow. As you might imagine, we teach an awful lot of sections of business ethics. <laughs> so do we actually at CSUN, or CSUN is what we call California State University Northridge. Cal State U Northridge, C-S-U-N, CSUN. So yeah, um, so good. So do the students, like do, do they come in and when, when they do philosophy, do you do a lot of philosophy of religion in your, in the other philosophy course they take? Like they take logic in another course, is it up to them what course they take or is yeah. it? Oh, it is, okay. And so um, what, what, ten, what do you have a sense of what the most popular other course is besides logic or business ethics? Oh gosh, um, no, partly because the kinds of 200 level courses that we offer rotate to some extent. So yeah. of course we do, you know, an introductory ethics course. Uh, and then there's, we've got a variety of sort of what you might call applied ethics courses like uh, courses on animal ethics or environmental ethics. Uh, business ethics, bioethics, we yeah. have a special course, uh, design, ethics course designed for our nursing students. Um, yeah, and, and then we have a number of, you know, you mentioned philosophy of religion, but they're in the non, let's say the non-value theory category, right? The M&E category. Uh, you know, we offer a bunch of different courses, including special topics classes. I can't even remember all of them now. So, uh, it depends on you know what people are interested in teaching and uh, for example one well this actually is sort of a value theory course but one semester we offered a class on the election the presidential election oh cool and um, and we offer a class uh, P PPE class politics philosophy economics mm -hmm. we offer um, you know courses that you would expect in uh, theories of justice uh, political philosophy um, what else uh, of course not, uh, you know, philosophy of mind, philosophy of science. Yeah. Um, even a course on this weird thing called modern philosophy. I, I don't know what that is, but. Does uh, ring any bells? Yeah, I know. Descartes or something. Uh, if you say so. Yeah, I know. I, I believe he was famous for saying that. <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> <laughs> then, yeah, then you're around, that's right. <laughs> that's right, that's uh, right. If you say so, then you're around. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, he might have put it more eloquently. Um, so, I am my existence necessarily true every time I utter it or conceive it in my mind. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's. I guess that's not more eloquent. I remember that from undergraduate modern philosophy, believe it or not. Yeah. Note to the viewers, or listeners rather, um, Chris and I went both to graduate school together and to undergraduate school together. We both went exactly. to... Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we were highly precocious undergraduates and terrible graduates. So, um, so we went to the University of Dayton, which is a Catholic university. And then we both went to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, which is where we got our PhDs. 
But like, I remember being a student at a Catholic university, but I don't know how Catholic the University of Dayton was compared to Spring Hill College, right? Like as a student, I certainly don't recall, you know, anybody trying to like convince us of Catholicism or something like that. It was, I suppose, assumed that a lot of us were Catholic. There were lots of faith opportunities on campus. There were retreats, there were speakers, but it wasn't as though any of the professors would pray before class. Uh, it wasn't as though, at least in my experience, um, it wasn't as though um, the professors were trying to convince us of Catholicism. One interesting thing is that a lot of the professors were priests, but um, you know, I didn't feel like it's the, it was the kind of place that if you went to, you would leave knowing a ton about Catholicism unless you wanted to. So what's Spring Hill like? Is it like the University of Dayton in that regard? I would say very similar. The difference is probably this. I'm, and now I'm trying to think back to when we were at Dayton. Um, well, as you know, I ended up minoring in philosophy, even though I was an engineering student. So I, I had an abnormally large amount of, of philosophy and humanities for someone in the, in the sciences. Uh, but we might have been able to get away with only taking one theology class at Dayton. I can't really remember. I had more than one. But I had one religion course. Yeah, That's I had. At Spring Hill, everyone takes at least two philosophy and at least two theology courses. Oh wow! And because we are a liberal arts institution, uh, I would say there's probably a little more interplay. Um, I think I think our core curriculum is probably a little heavier than what it was in Dayton, and so there's a little more opportunity to get. Uh, oh, how do I want to put it? I don't want to say become well-rounded, um, mm -hmm. but a, a little more exposure, I, I think, to the humanities than you might necessarily have had at Dayton at that right. time. Um, but but having said that, I, otherwise, I basically agree with what you were saying. There's many, many resources available to students to grow in their faith life, but it's also possible for someone to come here and, you know, study whatever they want to study and not really intersect with any of that. Now, do, are most of the students religious? Oh, I think, I think the vast majority are, yeah. I can't remember the specific breakdown now, but I would say something probably, something probably 70% or greater are identify as Christian. Uh-huh. And of those, um, you know, a significant number are going to be Catholic, maybe 50%. I'm not, I'm kind of making up numbers here, but. So like 50% yeah. of the student body is Catholic or 50% of the Christians are Catholic? Oh, right. No, I think about around 50% of the student body is Catholic. Yeah. And what about the faculty? Do you have any sense of what percentage of them are religious? Or right. Well, yeah, I'm guessing. Yeah. But uh, no, I don't actually. I would have to like go through and start thinking about all the faculty members. And, and of course, <laughs> some of them I just don't know. Yeah. Uh, you do, know. You have, uh, do you have uh, friends or acquaintances at Spring Hill who are non-religious? Oh, sure. And what do they think of the Catholic atmosphere of Spring Hill? Like, obviously, they knew what they were getting into, but to some right. extent, it's hard to get a job. So sometimes it's this or nothing. So they might, like, feel forced to go here, but also resentful of the Catholicism all around them. So what's what's your experience of, uh, of their experience been like? Yeah, what's my experience of their experience? Like, <laughs> yeah, well, as you know, sorry, this is a hard question. So as you know, I'm a practicing Catholic, and so it's yeah. an easy fit for me. Uh, and I am certainly aware of my colleagues who are um, who are atheists or agnostic or just you know sort of indifferent. 
Oh, but even among them, you know, some of them, they were raised in broadly Christian backgrounds. And so it's all the, the trappings of Christianity are at least familiar to them. Right. And so I would say the most confident thing I'm willing to say is that because of our very strong commitment to social justice and strong commitment to edu- high quality education, yeah, it's very easy for anybody who shares those values to um, identify with that part of the mission of the school. And uh, I think as a faculty, we generally work pretty well together. Mm-hmm. And so there's opportunities, you know, to do your job and to do it well and to appreciate, um, you know, appreciate what the mission of the school lets you do. Uh, you know, Will, William Rowe made a distinction between uh, friendly atheism and unfriendly atheism in his uh, famous widely anthologized article on the evidential problem of evil. Yeah. I would say that of the atheists here, um, probably many of them are of the friendly variety. So let's just be let's just be precise here. William Rowe, the one of the leading atheist philosophers of religion of the 20th century, when he talks about friendly atheism and unfriendly atheism, he's not talking about personal demeanor. Right. You can be a friendly person who is an unfriendly atheist and an unfriendly person who is a friendly atheist. A friendly atheist, if I recall correctly, because it's been a while since I read his article, was somebody who thought you could rationally believe in God in the face of the overwhelming suffering in the world and an unfriendly atheist was somebody who didn't think you could do that, right? That's correct, yes. And so you're saying of the atheist colleagues you have, they tend to think it's rationally permissible to be at least a theist, if not a Christian. <laughs> I'm Well, you know, the, the funny thing is philosophers worry a lot about what you're rationally justified in believing. And I find that non-philosophers almost never worry about that, it seems right. to me. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I wouldn't put it in that way, but I would, I would, what I would say by friendly atheist, I would say, they see some value in the Catholic, you know, in the Christian tradition. And even if they themselves aren't committed to it, uh, they don't feel, you know, they, they feel they can coexist alongside it perfectly well, even if they, you know, maybe do think it's irrational or something like this. Um, But, you know, it's an, it's a hard question. So I'm, you mentioned the, one of the first questions you asked is what is like, what are the resources, you know, what is, how does the Catholic identity inform, the actual practice of the school. And so I am involved in what's called the Ignatian Colleagues Program this year, mm-hmm. which is a, boy, I think a two year, year and a half, two year program. Uh, we meet, well, because of COVID, we're meeting via um, Zoom, which I'm pretty sure was invented by Satan. But anyway, uh, we're I mean, yeah, there's, there's an argument, there's an argument, yeah. There's an argument, yeah. But anyway, we would ordinarily meet in person, but it's a like a year and a half long program designed to help people of whatever religious commitment, you know, but me as a Catholic or, you know, someone else as an atheist, understand the Ignatian charism better and how you fit into that. And so one of the distinctive things you'll find at Jesuit institutions across the world, I believe, at least certainly in this country, is something called the Mass of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. The Holy Spirit, as you know, is the third person of the Christian Trinity. Mm -hmm. And the Mass of the Holy Spirit is just, you know, a, a Protestants would call a religious service. Uh, Catholics call it a mass at the beginning of the school year uh, where you pray to the Holy Spirit and you know for a, a good academic year ahead and I have had some of my colleagues I feel uncomfortable like do I have to go to this no of course you don't have to go to this but it's encouraged it's a community-wide college-wide event and you know of course if you're not a practicing anything and you walk into like if I you know I am not a practicing Hindu for example in fact I know nothing about very little about Hinduism. So if I were teaching at a predominantly Hindu institution, 
and I was expected to go to some service or other or some religious ritual, I would, I'm sure, feel that I had no footing whatsoever and it would be a bit awkward, right? Like you stand, sit, kneel, yeah, uh, float, uh, you know, um, swim, go on, breath, breathe, meditate, don't meditate, pet a cat, don't pet a cat, right? I mean, so anyway, I'm being silly here, but uh, no, so no, no, can, go on. Yeah, <laughs> I think the obvious answer is pet the cat, but okay. um, <laughs> so you can see, right, how someone would feel uncomfortable and maybe like even they know realize this is a community thing, but maybe don't want to participate, and there are never any consequences for doing it. You know, it's your. I would say it's a welcoming environment, but so so it's a mass, though, right? Is there the Eucharist is given yes. and everything. Yes. And and so why are they encouraged to go to this mass in particular, as opposed to like every mass? <laughs> um, you know, I, I honestly do not remember. The exact Is it at the beginning of the school year or something? And so it's just yeah, at the, the time. Of the school year or something, you know, like why are people when you get a new president at a university or college, right? You've got this big to do. Usually you've got the, uh, the installation of the president and yeah. everyone's invited to go or I I think they are. Um, yeah. yeah, they are. And okay. why would you do that, right? Well, it's a thing you do as a community. Yeah, fair enough. So let me ask you this. Are there um, extra opportunities? Like, I don't know how, if you ever get course relief at your university, if you get sabbaticals or if you get at least like one course off, if you apply, like at my university, technically we are in a 4-4 teaching load, but you can apply to get a grant to do independent research and they'll they'll give you like one course off that semester you can get a sabbatical it's very hard but it's possible they offer such things at spring hill i imagine or not they do it just and, you know depends on um as, as you know we are a small school right about right. 1200 students and so uh, for example we have uh in the um, this just this just happens to be the example that comes to mind right off the top of my head we have uh one professor who specializes in organic chemistry. And so she teaches the organic chemistry classes for, which as you know, is, I'm sure you know, is required for most pre-med curriculums, right? Yeah, for and some so, reason. For some reason, that's right. And so, you know, for her to take a sabbatical required some advanced planning, right? They had to find an adjunct who could come in and teach the organic chemistry classes when she was, you know, on sabbatical. So it just, yes, the answer is yes, there are some, but, um, the reason I ask is I want to know, are there special opportunities for Catholics? Like if you're a Catholic oh. professor, are there, are there course relief earmarked just for Catholics? No. Okay. All right. I didn't know to what extent they wanted to like prioritize the development of Catholic intellectuals or anything like that, but it's, it's a teaching school predominantly, right? So it's, it's not, they're not so about research. Do they give grants for like teaching development or anything like that? There are various opportunities. Yeah. Okay. So here's, so, so speaking of teaching and research, let's talk about your research. So what do you have, how much pressure do you have to do research at Spring Hill? Obviously you have to do some to get tenure, but like one or two articles or? Oh gosh, it's just hard to say. Um, there's no set criterion. No, no, there's no set thing. Uh, so there's, you know, some pressure, but obviously much less than, there's some, there is a requirement to do some research, particularly for getting tenure or for getting promoted. And it's expected that you will continue to do research, you know, at some level or other, but we're not an R1 school. Yeah. 
And, and so what research are you doing? Have you, what, like what research have you done at Spring Hill? I guess that's a big question. I don't know if you want to go back to the beginning, if you just want to talk about what you're doing now. <laughs> well, so my, my research can, falls into two main areas, right? So meta ethics, mm-hmm. uh, M-E-T-A, not meta, not medical ethics, but meta ethics, mm-hmm. ethical theory and uh, philosophy of religion slash philosophical theology. So okay. I, and then my, my written work falls literally at the intersection of those two. So for example, in my dissertation, I developed a theory of moral obligation grounded in, uh, grounded in Christian, grounded broadly speaking in Christianity. And what I'm currently working on now, still at the intersection of moral theory and philosophical theology is the atonement. So the atonement, uh, if you don't know what that is, is the idea that through some combination of his life, death and resurrection, Jesus somehow reconciled us to God mm-hmm. and uh, dealt, with our sin- dealt with our sins and our guilt. Yeah. And, and so is, how exactly, how does that work? So I, I'm also a practicing Catholic like Chris. And um, when I was in, I've always been baffled by the atonement as well, um, which is, it's kind of odd if you think about it, like, why are you uh, this unless you understand what it is you're affirming. But when you get down to it, this is true for like most of us, right? Like most people don't have very good arguments for why they believe in democracy or even what democracy is, but they go ahead believing it. So <laughs> I once I was in an improv group in, co- in graduate school and I wrote a, a sketch called Jack Christ, private detective, which was, you know, it was like Jesus Christ mixed up with like 1920s, 30s noir detective work. So like he'd be at the bar and he'd, you know, he'd say, give me a water and they give him a water and he'd turn it into wine and drink it and, you know, that kind of stuff. But like what would happen is that he was hired to do a mystery he was hard to solve a mystery, right? Like somebody's disappearance. And at the end of the sketch, it seemed like he hadn't solved it. And the person said, you didn't solve the mystery. And he goes, on the contrary, I solved all the mysteries. And (laughs) and I thought, okay. And that was the end of the sketch. And it was that I sort of captures my bafflement. Like Christ not only atones for, well, like he just dies, right? He gets killed. And then he comes back from the dead and that's supposed to have done something not just for me, but for all humans who have ever lived, maybe even those humans before Christ came. I, I suppose it depends on your story of the atonement. But um, how does that work? So you're working on that, right? That's right. And there's there's a variety of theories. And do you have a favorite theory yet? I don't. I um, <laughs> So, all right. I, I think the easiest thing to say is this. So let's back up a little bit. Um, The central Christian doctrine is the atonement that Jesus, that that God became incarnate and lived among us and died for our sins and reconciled us back to God. Like that's Christianity in a nutshell. If you don't believe that, then you're not a Christian. Um, And it's eminently clear. It's obviously clear that this is exactly what the first Christians believed. Right. So if you look at, I mean, just you can tell by looking at scripture, the, um, the famous hymn in uh, uh, two, uh, the second chapter of Philippians. Um, right. He did not uh, require uh, Jesus did not uh, regard equality with God as something to be grasped at, but lowered in form, you know, lowered himself, taking the form of a servant, blah, blah, blah. So all that stuff. Um, so in the earliest, very earliest letters of Paul, uh, which are the earliest Christian documents we have, Clearly, we understand, we see God, we see Jesus as, um, you know, 
God incarnate who's, who's somehow saved us through mm-hmm. his death and resurrection, life, death, and resurrection. So it's it's not as though that idea is negotiable. That's very firmly embedded. But interestingly, unlike, say, for example, um, the nature of Christ, right? Fully God, fully human, which was, uh, uh, or say, relations among the Trinity, for example, that God is triune. These things have been, um, you know, have been described by ecumenical councils. There is no one theory of the atonement that an ecumenical council has proclaimed as this is the right answer, this is how you understand it. So it's this very odd thing that we know it's true, but it's the central article of our faith, but how exactly it works, there are any number of theories and no Christian is committed to believing any one of them. Mm-hmm. And they all, they all have, you know, obviously their attractive points, but then they all also all have their problems. And I've never really found one that I said, oh yes, this clearly makes sense. This is, this is how the atonement works, right? Um, and I think part of what's going on here, and then I'll, I'll let you interject. Um, part of what's going on here, I think, is that the earliest Christians themselves did not understand, certainly did not understand how this worked. And so they used a variety of metaphors and images from right there, the very first Christians obviously were Jews. And they didn't think of themselves as Christians. They thought of themselves as good Jews who had, you know, been graced to encounter the Messiah. And so they used all the conceptual tools at their disposal, right? So Jesus's death is seen as sacrifice, right? In line with the Levitical sacrifices, for example. But if you know anything about Leviticus, you know that there are plenty of different kinds of sacrifice described in Leviticus. Some are for sin to take care of sins, but others aren't. Some are like thank offerings. There's the burnt offering. We don't even know what some of the sacrifices actually are supposed to do in Leviticus. Like the burnt offering, I think we're not entirely clear about what that's supposed to do. And so when you take, when you say Jesus' death is a sacrifice, well, okay, but like if you read scripture, and I, I cannot pull these quotes right off the top of my head, but in scripture, in the New Testament, it's very easy to see that his death is being analogized to all these different kinds of sacrifices. And you're like, wait, what? So for example, one of the most famous sacrificial images of Jesus is the prologue to John's gospel, right? Uh, Behold the lamb of God, he takes away the sins of the world. What is the lamb of God? Well, that's the Passover sacrifice, right? That's what um, when the, when the Israelites slaughtered the lamb and put the blood on the lintel, right on the doorpost, so that the angel of God would pass over. Well, that had nothing to do with sin at all, right? Mm-hmm. Literally nothing to do with sin. It was to indicate who was a Jew, you know. And and yet this is the image that John uses at the very start of his gospel. So mm-hmm. how what does it mean to say that Jesus is the Passover sacrifice? And we can talk about expiation versus propitiation, uh, propitiation. Sorry. Mm-hmm. So to summarize, then, if anyone is still paying attention at this long, rambling monologue uh, worthy of a Saturday Night Live opener, I would say that what you've got are a bunch of different and to some extent conflicting images and metaphors in scripture. And then the question for philosophers and theologians, mm-hmm. uh, philosophical theologians, is, you know, how, how do you make sense of all this? Okay, so let me let me go back a bit before we start getting into the nitty gritty of the atonement. You said it's the central Christian doctrine. It's the most non-negotiable of all the Christian doctrines. I should think so. So then 
imagine there was somebody who, who believed in the atonement, but did not believe Jesus was God, right? A Unitarian Christian, right? They thought maybe Jesus was the son of God, but not literally God. Like Dale Tuggy seems to fall under this category. Dale Tuggy is a philosopher who formerly taught at SUNY somewhere. He wrote the Stanford Encyclopedia Philosophy article on the Trinity. He knows the Trinity really well. And he thinks overall the doctrine is just incoherent and can't be saved. And so he's a Unitarian, but he thinks, I think he thinks that like the earliest Christians were Unitarians too. He doesn't just think this for philosophical reasons. I think he thinks scripturally speaking, really, this is an interpretation of the scripture you don't need to have. And he bets the early Christians didn't have it. Um, so you think that would be okay. You, you could still in theory be a Christian like that. Oh gosh. You know, I hate litmus tests. Um, I, I don't think of Unitarians. They're not certainly not traditional Christians who are committed right. to the triune God. Right. But I, I don't want to be like, you know, some horrible person who says, Oh no, you can't be Christian. You talks on right. your house. I mean, yeah. But if somebody said, I believe that Jesus was God and I believe he had a physical resurrection, but I don't believe he did any atoning work at all. Like, Oh, wow. That would be weird. It would be super weird. I don't know that anybody has ever had that view, but you would think that then that you really can't qualify as Christian because you, you said it was kind of like the most non-negotiable, but I don't know if it's non-negotiable, literally. Yeah. So, well, there are atonement theorists who think that uh, this is called the exemplarist theory of the atonement. And the idea is that through his death, Jesus sort of gave us an example of what true love looks like and yeah. it kindles within our hearts this love for each other and for god and that's what you know so it's jesus jesus is nothing but an example right so this Kant, is very Kant seemed maybe to have that view yeah okay so it's what we call these generally subjectivist theories of the atonement as opposed to objective theories where jesus literally through his death literally did something was ransom was sacrifice was our penal substitute uh, made satisfaction to God, any, you know, there are a bunch of options on the table here. Um, yeah. But if, uh, if somebody were came around and said, I don't even think he served as an example. Right. I would say then it would be hard. I mean, if they wanted to call themselves Christian, fine. But I would, at that point, I would sort of say, okay, so then why are you interested in Christianity? Okay. Yeah. So that's what I thought might be the answer. Like, is the thought that it's the atonement doctrine that of all the practical reasons to be a Christian, right? Like if somebody says, what do you get out of being a Christian? And, you know, the answer is I do get something out of it. The answer would probably have to do with the atonement, right? That like I, the fact that God sacrificed himself to save me, even though I'm a jerk, that's just amazing and very inspiring. And so that has like, and not just me, but by dying, he saved us all. So like, this is just very, this is very moving. And this is why I practice Christianity. I mean, but I, I can imagine somebody saying I do it, you know, because I think this is the way to get to heaven or something like that. And I think this will save my soul. But like, um, you, you think that like, as a matter of fact, of the Christians who take their religion seriously, this is sort of like the core of why they care. I would think so. I think it'd be an interesting empirical project. Like yeah, sure. It's absolutely an interesting empirical question. Yeah. So, I mean, one way, well, you know, it's funny. Um, I find these questions perfectly, just perfectly fascinating. I'm not sure how many people, sort of lay people in the pews, actually worry about this stuff at all. They yeah. just sort of take it 
at face value that Jesus died for our sins and yay us. And uh, now what do we do? Like, you know, what, what are we doing in this life until, you know, the next? Um, but if we were to, if we spend some time reflecting on the doctrine of the atonement, I think unavoidably what it tells us, I mean, quite apart from worries about how you objectively take away guilt or things like this or deal with sins or, or even reckon even reconciliation. I mean, if nothing else, the doctrine of the combined, the doctrines of the incarnation and the atonement tell us something about how God relates to us, something like really profound, right? Mm-hmm. Like we have a God who didn't just create us, who doesn't just talk to us, who doesn't just um, covenant with us, doesn't just make promises with us, but literally has entered into our mode of existence and somehow died right, made some sort of sacrifice, um, you know, gave up something in order to relate to us in a certain way. Um, I mean, that's like, I mean, put that way, if you weren't a Christian, right, if you just, if, if you just heard someone, oh, yeah, I've got this religion, and here's what I think, you might think, that just bonkers crazy, right? You literally <laughs> think that, like, the uncreated creator of the universe somehow became the thing that you are, and then let himself be killed in order to affect a, a greater relationship, right, as the as the Orthodox Church says, the Eastern Church says, uh, God became man, that man be- might become God, right? Yeah. Not literally, you know, literally become God, obviously, that would be a category error, but, um, Right. Right. That we could become divinized or whatever, whatever, yeah, more Christ-like, whatever. However, but not just more Christ-like, but like literally change in our mode of existence. Right. Oh, to have like a risen body, you mean? Oh, or- absolutely. Right. So that's okay. the, of the general resurrection, right. We'll have, as Paul describes it in uh, the 15th chapter of his first letter to the Corinthians, like we have glorified incorruptible bodies. Right. What does that mean? I mean, I don't know, um, but I assume it means I'll be bulletproof. Uh, I, I mean, like, I mean, it's funny when I've talked to, you know, serious philosophical Christians and I do like some of them are quite interested in this question. Like what are the powers of the risen body? And so they'll, they'll look at, you know, Jesus after his resurrection, they'll say, well, you know, he was, they saw him and they knew he was Jesus, but he also didn't look like Jesus. So there's some kind of, I mean, you might take this to mean there's something called a hexaity, or there's like a primitive thisness. There's this Jesusness about him, but you can also talk about how he just oh, <laughs> he just appeared in one place and then was in another. So it looks like he can teleport and this kind of stuff. Or maybe it, it, it was like um, he had the power to just appear in people's minds and you know that kind of stuff. Who knows? But yeah, there there are definitely some Christian philosophers who who speculate about this. But I think. You know, it's interesting. I I could be wrong, but I, I think, you know, even among the serious Christians, the question, well, how does the atonement work exactly? I could be wrong. I bet it just doesn't come up much. Like, they're like, oh, I'm so thankful he's he died for our sins. And it's like, I have to think when they are dealing with people who are non-Christians and they're like evangelizing, it's got to come up at least sometimes, right? Especially if there's somebody who's literally interested in Christianity who's like, wait a second, how did that work exactly? So this, these are what theories of atonements do. Like if I say to you, um, you did something terrible to me, right? You, um, you, know, you, you took credit for a philosophy paper I did, or you got me fired from my job for just purely malicious reasons. And then I say, however, 2000 years ago, this guy got executed. And so because of that, 
you can be forgiven or something like that. Is that right? I mean, forgiven isn't exactly the word. You can be saved because of that, but like you've wronged me. I mean, forgiveness is right. It's tied up right, you know, tied right, right up in there. Um, so we do want to make a distinction between God forgiving us for the bad things that we do, right? Yeah. And uh, other humans, right? The yeah. victims of our um, victims of our malicious actions forgiving us. So yeah. the, the one might happen without the other. So why don't you spend a second explaining why the atonement is so weird? And then go into at least one of the theories, maybe William Lane Craig's, because I know he's the person you worked on most recently, um, trying to dissolve the weirdness of the atonement. Yeah, so, well, I think you've actually done a really good job of capturing the weirdness of the atonement already, right? So put sort of crudely, how is it that someone dying 2,000 years ago is supposed to reconcile me to God? Like, what is literally, what, is, what does Jesus have to do with me? Well, well, let me stop for a second, just to be clear on the, what the atonement is saying. Like, let's say I murder somebody else. Like I murder somebody's child and the parents are outraged right. and grieving. Um, if, if any, if I should be looking for forgiveness from anybody, it should be the parents. Right. Or it, it let's, if I didn't murder the kid, let's say I just badly wounded the kid. I should be looking for forgiveness from the kid and the kid's parents or, you know, family or whatever, but also God, but also God. And is it because I've destroyed something that God made that's valuable? Is that the idea or? Well, I think you've directly offended God as well. Uh -huh. um, it's not just that, you know, it's this thing that God made, but it's, I mean, well, so why would you want, suppose you, you know, you injure a child, as you just said, you would want to seek the forgiveness of the child's um, parents as well. Why is that? Well, I mean, the child isn't really something that they made. Um, I mean, I think we all know that children come from storks anyway. This is what I learned in basic biology class. Uh, but it's that they love the child, right? And so likewise, God loves us. But the, right, our love is only analogical to the love that God has right, for us. Right. So, so God loves uh, us even more than we love our own children. Yeah, of course, right. And, and so, so, so when we kill somebody else's child or wound somebody else's child, that is more hurtful to God than it would be even to the child's parents. Or if not hurtful might not be the right word if God is impassable, but it's a more grievous offense, a more grievous wrongdoing to God than it is to the child's parents, that kind of thing. Or you don't, or you're not sure if you want to say that. The point is it's bad to both. It's bad to both. Yeah. So I'm recalling the line of uh, the line from Psalm 51 against you alone god i have sinned and which is a weird line like only against god have i sinned what about the people i've hurt right right uh, and i'm unsure uh, i do not feel competent at this very moment to speak on the exegesis of that line i'm sure there are many different ways of reading it but we you know one way of reading it i suppose would be that sins against god our um our alienation from God is literally that we are alienated from God is more important than that. We are alienated from other humans. Right. And, and, and so, um, but like the atonement is supposed to make us at one with God, right? The at one mint, right? right? Really the atonement at one. That's right. And, and so being at one with God presumably means being something like, no longer having those ways of thinking, no longer having those habits, no longer having those like those bad those bad things you've done in your history, your debts, you might say, 
that prevent you from being able to accept God's love or, or something like that. Yeah, no, this is really good. So very perceptive. So, right. It depends. <laughs> this is part of the reason I like thinking about the atonement so much. There's enormous amounts of disagreement about it. And so someone like William Lane Craig, you mentioned earlier, he has a very narrow understanding of the atonement. It's basically dealing objectively with our guilt. Dealing objectively like with our guilt. Or, uh, okay. As opposed to someone like Eleanor Stump, who uh, has a much takes a much broader view of the atonement as literally at one then, um, where we and God are at one, we are reconciled. And as you just pointed out, reconciliation with God seems to require us giving up our sinful habits and dispositions and so forth. And so somehow uh, Jesus is through his life, death and resurrection is supposed to deal with all of that, our guilt, our shame, our bad habits, our sinful inclinations, right? Um, so that we can literally become at one, right, truly united with God. Whereas on Craig's view, it's just about dealing with our guilt. Like we deserve to be punished. And on his view, Christ serves as our penal substitute. Mm -hmm. And so he endures the punishment that uh, is properly owed to us. Yeah. And thereby, and then on Craig's view, once uh, the punishment is, is meted out, right, once punishment is had, then God can pardon us, which is a legal category yeah. for our sins. Right? And as you know, right, in a, in a, if the president pardons someone, it certainly doesn't make it as though it never happened. It just, you know, restores certain privileges they had and mean, means that they are no longer eligible to be punished for their wrongdoing and so forth. Good. So let me, let me. But, but of course, the fact that, so suppose the president of the United States pardons someone who's committed a terrible crime right yeah. even i don't know treason or something like this yeah uh, i suppose you can pardon for treason right um yeah i think so. i think you can pardon for think, anything i don't think there are any limits on presidential pardoning powers uh, there might be when it comes to the president pardoning himself but i don't know yeah right um and well anyway this is, we're getting way off topic here but suppose the president pardons someone for some you know serious very serious crime uh and so the person's like sort of liberties are restored and so forth. Still, that doesn't at all mean that the person is now a good person, is not going to commit the same sort of offense again, is going to work towards the betterment of the country, uh, will exercise civic virtues, none of that. It yeah. literally just means the person is not liable to, to punishment for, um, for whatever wrong misdeed, wrongdoing, right, crime yeah. that he or she has committed. And yes. Yeah. So, so let, let me stop for a second, because if the atonement you read is at one minute, right, where you're trying to reconcile yourself to God, where, where reconciling yourself to God could mean one of two things. It could mean either like God is mad at you and you do the thing so that God stops being mad at you, or you That's could say God's, yeah. what, what'd you say? That's called propitiation. Yeah. Being okay. God, yeah. Or you could say God's not mad at you. God loves everybody unconditionally, right? Unconditionally means without condition. God never gets mad at you. But that when you do bad things, you separate yourself from God. You sort of make yourself unable to accept the love that God has for you because of all the bad things. So, well, hold on a second. Um, back up a second. The fact that God loves you unconditionally doesn't mean that God may not be mad at you. Whatever sense we want to make of God being angry or mad. Oh, I see. Mad. God can love you and still be right uh, and still be full of wrath towards you 
on account of your sins. And yeah. if God's yeah. wrath is propitiated, then uh, the wrath is no more. Um, but it, of course, uh, on well, it, again, it depends. It depends on the view, the theorist in question, because people literally hold different views about this. But on some views, anyway, God can fully love you and yet not have forgiven you for sins. Whereas other theorists hold that in just the very act of God's loving you is in fact also implies that you are forgiven. Yeah. Uh, but right. But the bare fact that you're forgiven doesn't mean that you've accepted this forgiveness or that you've moved back in, in the direction of God. Right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this will get to, to love. What is love anyway? And, you know, I might love a family member, but also be really mad at them at the same time. It certainly, it might be the case that love is not um, an occurrent emotion that happens at a particular moment, but is rather diachronic, right? It goes through time. And so just like some people make this distinction between happiness and pleasure, where pleasures are momentary and happiness like might describe a life, it might be the case that love is used to describe a relationship Whereas anger might be used to describe like an attitude at a moment or over a period of time or not. I yeah. mean, it, it could be these things. The reason I bring it up though, is that if atonement means trying to change yourself so that you are ready to accept God's love, it, or if atonement means you do something so that God's no longer, no longer mad at you, it's really mysterious how somebody dying 2000 years ago does anything to change you so that you are able to accept God's love. And it's also unclear why, if somebody is executed, why God would no longer be mad at you. Like if, if I do something terrible to you and then some other person who's really good is executed very far away, it'd be weird for me to say, well, now you're not mad at me, right? Like, you know, I know I destroyed your car and I'd happily do it again, but this really good person like got horribly executed far away. So you and I are good, huh? Yeah. And that's, but that's kind of what the atonement says, seems to say, right? Yeah. So how does Craig, I think you've hinted at it a bit. How does Craig get out of this weirdness? Like he's, first of all, not going to describe the atonement as you change yourself so that you become worthy of God's love or anything like that. You don't change yourself so that God is angry at you. It's rather, it's like, you might think of it like a fine, right? Like I do something, I damage you. I owe you $5,000 and then somebody else comes and pays you the $5,000 on my that's behalf. That's how Craig thinks of it. Yeah. The, there's a debt of punishment that needs to be owed. That, that is owed. I should say, sorry. And uh, Jesus pays it on our behalf. And, and um, what is this view called? This is called the vicarious substitution account or the penal atonement. Well, there's, I mean, there's different, there's a lot of different views on the table here, but yeah, his view is called penal substitution. Penal so, substitution. Okay. As opposed to, for example, um, uh, a sort of what what would be the word, uh, uh, like you know, financial substitution, right? So where someone else pays your fine for you, and the point is the fine is now paid. Doesn't matter who pays it, just the fact that it was paid, and so now we're done. Yeah. Um, and but so with if you think, if you think of um, of the wages of sin as if you know, you think if you think of punishment in terms of a debt, yeah, uh, then it's a debt that could be paid. The important thing is the debt has to be paid, and Jesus pays it instead of us, and yeah. now we're all good. 
So there's a bunch of theories of punishment and what it's supposed to do, right? It's might maybe supposed to deter, it's maybe supposed to serve as retribution, maybe supposed to serve some expressive value for the community. But one of the things that's weird, it seems hard to imagine how on any theory of punishment, when somebody has done something criminally wrong, uh, where I have done like some harm to your person, I haven't just affected your finances, which can be easily, well, maybe not easily, but which can be restored in full. When I've like cut off your arm and you can't get a new arm, right? I could pay you money, but you're never going to get that arm back. But it, it strikes- What'd you say? Or can I? Well, <laughs> well. Elon Musk is going to build me an arm. Yeah, <laughs> Armex. Um, but but like, <laughs> but when when you um, if it I only like, work half the time, but it'll be faster than any other arm. <laughs> well, half the time is great than better than no arm. If I kidnap somebody and I'm caught, and then the person you know I didn't harm the person, but I still terrified them. It's super weird that somebody else could pay the debt. It seems like. Either I deserve it, I deserve to be put in jail because I've done a bad thing, or I have to be punished to deter other people from doing it, or I have to be punished so that I can be rehabilitated so that I don't do it again, or I have to be punished so the community expresses its view that these kinds of things just won't be tolerated. But somebody else getting punished, that wouldn't deter crime. Like it wouldn't deter me. It's like, oh, I can do it again and somebody else will get punished. It certainly doesn't seem like a fitting thing to happen to me because nothing happened to me. It doesn't rehabilitate me, obviously, because, and then finally, if it expresses the views of the community, it seems like what a weird view the community wants to express. They're so angry at my kidnapping that they're going to hurt somebody who's beautiful, right? So like Craig, though, seems to think that you can do a debt substitution for these kinds of acts. Yeah, so, no, right, good. So I would say doing a lot of the work here is this debt metaphor. But also, he tries to come up he, in his latest book, uh, which was just published, um, oh, guess 2021 now. Well, it was published in the summer of 2020 okay. uh, at Baylor University Press. He draws a bunch of analogies with our uh, secular legal system. So there's, um, oh, gosh, let me think here. Um, there are legal fictions mm -hmm. whereby the court pretends that something is true that is obviously false just for the purposes of sort of getting the right result out. And there is also vicarious, the more interesting one is vicarious liability, okay, uh, which is right where you can be held responsible for someone else's wrong actions. And so we see this uh, often in the two main cases that I can think of that everyone's going to readily recognize are employ uh, employment law, right? When employers can sometimes be held liable for the actions of their employees. And say, for example, um, if you're out for a walk and you're walking by my house and my cat comes out and mauls you and, and you suffer grievous injuries by my cat. And I realize that no one is going to find this plausible, but you know. Uh, they haven't you seen your cat. Maybe you can find Avon Meonsdale and show the show the. He was he, he was behind me earlier. Yeah, so he nearly knocked him. over this cat tree. I know. Well, show show the audience the mur his murder mittens, and then you get some sense of like, <laughs> how damage cats can do. Anyway, right? The thought is, if your animal, if your pet hurts, uh, if my pet hurts you, right? I'm liable for the actions of my pet, and I'm liable even if. I wasn't negligent, right? If I did everything right and somehow the cat escaped anyway and I, you couldn't have expected me to do anything else, yeah. right? I'm still liable for, or like, you know, if my small child, 
right? Does something wrong, damages something or whatever, causes harm, innocent, even innocently, right? Um, and there's nothing that he or she could have done differently. And there's nothing I, as a parent, could have done differently. Still, I'm liable for this stuff. So uh, if you take images like that seriously, yeah. uh, then you can, those provide, in Craig's view, rough analogies to how you might think that Jesus, um, Jesus uh, absorbs our punishment for us. So I don't, I don't, I don't think any of this works, but yeah. Uh, well, like, first of all, there's this, anal- this distinction that, that Alvin Planning of the philosopher of religion made a while ago between a defense and a theodicy, where defense is trying to show how um, you can, it's, it's not trying to explain what God's reasons for allowing evil actually are. They're just trying to give you some reasons that if they were God's reasons, they would justify why there is this evil, why an all-loving God, an all-powerful God would allow this evil. So I take it that Craig is trying to do something similar. He's not trying to say this is how the atonement actually works. This is just a model for how the atonement could work. Or is he not even doing that much? He's trying to say this is a metaphor that will sort of get us in the right headspace and maybe allow us to see something analogous, but still we're not going to be able to understand the exact reasons. No. So Craig's view, he literally is a penal substitution theorist. He thinks that Jesus was our penal substitute and was punished on our behalf mm-hmm. now and he thinks like that's how this works and his the main reason he's committed to penal substitution uh, uh is scriptural so he'll look at scripture and say that this, this, the, the penal substitution motif runs throughout scripture and uh and in virtue of like things like for example um isaiah chapter 53 uh were committed to a penal substitution view of the atonement now in terms of what i just mentioned vicarious liability or legal fictions or other models yeah those things yeah yeah okay i I don't think he's necessarily committed to um those as being exact explainers of how penal substitution works i um again i don't want to put words in his mouth but and it has been a few months anyway since I've read his book, but my impression is that he thinks that these provide good analogies for why we should think penal substitution is uh, philosophically viable. So let's, let's, the one that seems, I don't, I have to confess, I don't understand the strict liability analogy, how it like helps at all about how like, look, sometimes you're just liable no matter what you, even if you did everything right, you're still liable because the damage happened. That I don't understand as relating even to the atonement. But the thing earlier about like, um, about a corporation, right? Where like, if a member of a corporation does something terrible, can't pay the debt because it's just too large, the corporation as a whole pays the debt, even though none of those people who were part of the corporation did anything wrong, since they're part of the corporation, they, you know, the corporation itself is fined and maybe penalized in a more dramatic way. And as a result, um, that settles the wrongdoing that the person in the corporation did. So on this view, like the corporation, the body would be all humans, right? And like the, the, the person, I guess Jesus would be like the corporation itself that is like paying for the wrongdoing of one of the employees in the corporation, right? So I guess all humans are the employees of the corporation, Jesus is like a corporation qua person, right? The legal fiction of a, of a corporate person, right? Jesus is the, the corporate person. 
he gets punished just like the corporation gets punished because one of the members or actually in this case, all the members of the corporation have done something wrong, but none of them have enough money to pay for what the damages they've done. So Jesus, who does have enough money, like the corporation somehow, he pays, right? And in this case, the damages, like, I guess the thought is that whenever anybody sins, they do something kind of infinitely wrong because something like that, right? Is that the view that Craig has? You know, I'm not, I, I can't actually remember off the top of my head whether he joins Anselm, St. Anselm, and thinking that all sins are infinitely grievous. And I don't, as far as I remember his view, I don't think he needs to be committed to that anyway. Yeah. Whether he thinks that, I don't know. I don't think he does, but I could yeah. be wrong about this. But at any rate, yes, all of our sins alienate us from God, and certainly there's a lot of them. And, uh, and, well, alienation wouldn't be the right word, right? It's a debt we owe to God. Right? Well, it's true. We're alienated, but yes, that's right. We are also liable to punishment. That's right. And uh, and uh, and so one way God could deal with this is just to punish all of us. But if you think that this punishment is everlasting damnation in hell, I'm, I'm pretty sure Craig does think that, then if God doesn't want his creatures, his beloved creatures to be everlastingly punished in hell, whatever yeah. precisely that comes to, then uh, God's other move is to uh, endure the punishment of God's self. Yeah. And so on this view, then when I say, when, 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 when uh, somebody says to me, Jesus died for your sins, you should be thankful. What they're saying is there was this terrible debt. You deserve to go to hell, but because of what Jesus did, you now have the chance to not go to hell. And psychologically, this might not help you at all, right? It might not help you with any of your vices, inclinations, anything like that. It's not like somehow that like, because of these, you won't accept God's love and Jesus's death somehow lets you accept it. It's rather that even if you would accept God's love, you still have this debt, right? And even somebody who's willing, you know, to, to be around God in all his glory still doesn't deserve to be around God in all his glory as long as this debt is around his neck. And so Jesus pays the debt for us. And so then when it comes to like all the psychological regeneration, the sanctification, that kind of stuff, um, that, that might be done by Jesus in a different way, but not through his death, right, and resurrection, yeah, I think that's Craig's view. That's right. Yeah, so th- there is one other uh, aspect here that we need to mention. Um, so the view of this, Craig believes that our guilt is imputed to Christ. So, of course, Christ remains personally sinless, right? Mm-hmm. Christ never committed any sins, can't commit any sins, right? He's impeccable. Uh, and yet our guilt is imputed to Christ. That's one direction. So that takes care of the punishment that right, the debt of punishment we, we owe. But in the other direction, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. And I find that even more mysterious, but somehow we are considered by God to share in the righteousness of Christ. And yeah. that makes us eligible. Well, I mean, we're not psychologically fit to be in the presence of God at any rate, but I mean, it makes us sort of legally fit, I suppose, to be in the yeah. presence of God. And yeah. so, so, so I guess the thought then would be something like every employee of this corporation is terrible, but the corporation itself is the best corporation imaginable. That's right. It the, has infinite resources to pay any debt its employees might ring up. 
Yeah. So all the employees, all of humanity goes to Vegas and loses all the time. Yeah. And then Jesus, the CEO, comes in and says, you know what? I've got a really big checkbook. Yeah. And so and so Jesus pays it. So now what's what's the what's your criticism of Craig's model here? Why do you why do you not accept his model? Why do I <laughs> well I think you've already done a pretty good job of criticizing it. It just doesn't make any sense. Well, hold on, hold on. I, I think I think the um, the corporation model we just gave, right? Every single employee, like as you said, goes to Vegas and blows all their salary all the time. Not only that, they like you know kick everybody that who's working in Vegas, and they're just terrible guests. The corporation has to be fined for the behavior of its members, but the corporation makes this great product, right? You know, like let's say the corporation makes a product that like cures cancer, right? And it gives all its employees the best health insurance. And it like has, you know, very sensitive workplaces, uses all the right words to describe people. And, um, and you know, it just like wins all the awards. And these are the official policies and they've done everything right to try to get the policies enforced. It's just that they keep on getting terrible people who work for it and they, they try their best and everybody who looks sees how hard they try. It's just that these are really the only employees they can get. So all these employees are terrible, but the corporation is great. The corporation pays for the wrongdoing of the employees because none of the employees can afford to pay back what they owe, but the corporation as a whole can. That's Craig's model. And insofar as they're part of this corporation, people think how great they are, right? How great thou art even. Um, but, it, but insofar as they've done these terrible things that they can't pay for it, they owe this, this incredible debt. So Jesus pays the debt and they also get imputed righteousness because they work for this wonderful corporation. Okay, what is the problem? Like, where does this analogy fail when it comes to our actual, like, behaviors? Yeah. So I'll say, okay, I'll say two things. Um, the first is that, again, on this view, whatever, I mean, the corporation model, whatever, the, the view is literally this, that Christ is our penal substitute. He mm -hmm. is punished in our stead. And the problem is making sense of that. So mm -hmm. it just, um, penal substitution just doesn't seem to make any sense. As you mentioned earlier, right, the example of uh, uh, you hurt me, or I forget exactly how you ran it, but you hurt I me. I did a lot of things to you. I kidnapped as well. Yeah, and then someone else volunteers to be punished in your place. Yeah. And so I, as a victim, I'm going to say, okay, well, so what? It's mm -hmm. irrelevant to me that some other, it is at best irrelevant to me that someone else who's innocent is getting punished in Rob's place. I mean, at worst, it's, it's horrific because why would I want an innocent person to be punished at all, right? Yeah. Uh, and also, it's just, it does nothing for me as a victim, right? Like, how does this, uh, what relevance, possible relevance is this? So um, we get, Mark Murphy, and he's not certainly not the first person to make this criticism, but in a 2012 or 2013 article uh, on uh, vicarious satisfaction, he argues, he basically says, look, we don't have any models for the imputation or transfer of guilt it just, uh, from one person to another, just as it makes, it doesn't make any sense to transfer guilt, just as it doesn't make any sense to um, transfer praise, right? So if you, if, you and I are in a, in a race, a marathon, and you win the marathon, and I come in last, and 
You're like, uh, we'll just, you know, give my give my award to Chris. I come in last by the way because I can't even run a marathon. I, I don't think my body will literally take me the 26 point whatever, Two. 34 miles it is. 26.2. Uh, it would probably feel like 100 to me. Um, so I don't win. And but you're like, oh no, just give my trophy to Chris, and everyone's like, oh yeah, okay. So now Chris came in first place in the marathon. No, right? It, it, that's just just a sad joke or something like this. It, it makes no sense to accord me praise, and it would make no sense to punish. Uh, now the reason Mark argues this, he says, look, um, there's an ex a, an intellectual uh, expressive value to punishment, mm -hmm. and just harsh treatment of someone doesn't count as punishment unless it expresses approbation of that person for the wrongdoing. But of course, if you punish and try to punish an innocent person, you, you can't be expressing approbation of that person because the person literally didn't do anything. There's nothing to complain about. And so the expressive value of punishment, the expressive value utterly fails. Yeah. And so the harsh treatment conceptually simply cannot count as punishment at all. That's the way that Mark runs it. But just more basically, like I said, it doesn't make any sense to punish. Uh, at least it doesn't make any sense to us. Now, uh, uh, Phil Quinn, you know, the very famous philosopher of religion, uh, some long time in their name, suggested, or not well, didn't suggest, claimed that uh, in the Middle Ages, which is not particularly helpful since the atonement, right, happens not in the Middle Ages, it happens more than 2,000 years ago. Uh, but in the Middle Ages, they regarded uh, punishments as literally, uh, the sort of, the, the debt of punishment is literally pecuniary in nature. And so uh, the important point was that the punishment, the fine was paid, it was literally could be paid by money. So, yeah. you know, person A, person from tribe A murders someone from tribe B, and the the costs, right, the punishment, or if you will, the debt of punishment is like, I don't know, a million dollars or something. And so someone from tribe B has to pay, right, tribe B somehow has to cough up the money, but yeah. it doesn't matter whether the actual person who did the murdering coughs up the money. What was important was the exchange in order to like avoid a blood feud or something like this. Um, well, okay, if you think of punishment in those terms, yeah, maybe, except that we don't think of punishment in those terms and we have good reasons for not thinking of punishment in those terms. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't think of punishment in terms of like the, the goal of punishing is not to avoid a blood feud or something like this. Right. So um, it just doesn't make any given our conceptual schemes, given our conceptions of guilt and punishment and all the rest, it just doesn't make any sense. Right. So, so I, I suspect that no, there, there's a, there's a legal scholar named William Ian Miller and he wrote a book called, I think it was called An Eye for an Eye, where he talked about <clears throat> practices of retributivism, not just in the Middle Ages, but in around the time of Jesus's execution. And he said that there were very sophisticated systems people have had for settling debts. And it was indeed, as Quinn says, more pecuniary in that it didn't have, like if, if I cut out your eye, I didn't have to get the eye of you Sorry, you didn't have to get the eye of me to be um, made whole. You could just get somebody's eye from my family, right? Right? Uh, from my kin. And as long as that held, then the debt was considered paid. And so there's a couple possibilities here, I think. One is that 
maybe the reason the atonement is so hard for us to understand is that we're too individualistic. And if we thought more in, in terms of like families or nations or cities or something like that, where as long as some member of your family like suffers for the thing you've done, then we're all made good. It also raises the question of just how contingent our understandings of what is a just or unjust punishment are. Like to what extent is the idea that um, criminal actions, for lack of a better word, are ones that are not transferable, whereas civil ones are, right? Are, are there lots of cultures where they thought pretty much any, any kind of wrongdoing was transferable and were sort of the odd people out? Or were the, those cultures that William Ian Miller studied and that Quinn was talking about, were they the odd man out? Or is there just no consistency here? But even if there's no consistency, then you still have the question of, <laughs> Does, does the doctrine of atonement, in order for it to be comprehensible, require like a conceptual transformation among modern Western people in order to understand it? And is would, would God, if God has this atonement plan, want that? Or would God want us to have lots of different models of the atonement? But um, here's the last question before we go. Given the problems you see with the atonement, like why does this make you pessimistic about the chances of making sense of it? Or do you find that there's some model that actually has is pretty darn um, appealing? It just has a few problems around the edges that you think you might be able to iron over? I've never read, I've never encountered a model where I thought, yeah, that makes sense. Like just straighten out the edges a little bit, solve some minor problems, but the core idea, yeah, that's it. I've, I never encountered that actually, which I suppose is one of the reasons that the problem attracts me so much. And I unfortunately um, have not worked out a positive view to my satisfaction yet, but I can tell you that I think the most promising line of inquiry is to think about, so the, the problem of at one moment, right? The problem of unity between us and God isn't just that we're sinners and it's not just that we have a fallen nature, right? And so we're liable to sin. It's that in some sense, we're not the sort of thing that's fit for union with God anyway, because God here, think, you know, think in terms of Marilyn McCord Adams, metaphysical size gap between God and us, right? God is just it's not that God is very, very big and we are very, very small, although that's true. It's like God is just something, you know, utterly different from us. And so how, how can you bridge that gap? Like, how can we be fit for, um, you know, relationship with God? And that God becomes human with the, the incarnation, I think. I suspect when I finally get out, get a view worked out, it's going to be the incarnation that does most of the work and the actual fact of Jesus' death will do it will it will do work but it will do less work right so jesus dies and what does that mean well it certainly means that jesus has entered god has entered utterly fully and completely into human existence right not just to the point of like showing up as a mirage or showing up in human form but literally becoming human uh, and not just becoming susceptible to death but in fact actually dying i think allows us to uh, be united with God in a way that would otherwise be impossible. Now it's gonna take a lot of 
you know, hard work spelling out how exactly that's supposed to work. But um, I think that's, that's the view that I favor right now. So last question, if I worked out a view to my satisfaction, could I transfer that to you? And as long as I'm satisfied, you're okay because somebody else was satisfied. Would that work? This is like, uh, I call this the vicarious, vicarious <laughs> atonement view, you. Well, I take it that uh, Craig is pretty satisfied with his view. Let's take his. And, and he'd be very willing to transfer it to me. And uh, <laughs> that is nothing at all for me. It leaves me cold. <laughs> all right. Well, on that note, I think we're going to go. Thank you very much, Chris. Thanks, Rob. This has been a pleasure. Um, you didn't let your cat get in any questions in edgewise, but... Uh, my cat behind me is Saul Cripcat. Saul, do you have any questions? No. Oh, look at that withering stare. <laughs> yeah, he's mad. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, see you later. Bye. Bye, Rob.